We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, so we are going to first look at a map. I know you all are very excited. I don't know if you all watch Dora the Explorer, if you have grandkids or kids. I'm a map, I'm a map, I'm a map, I'm a map, I'm a map. You all, you all know I love maps. So we're back in Acts chapter 16, and as you remember, this would have been two weeks ago, we saw at the end of chapter 15 that there was a discussion between Paul and Barnabas, and they were going to return and visit all of the churches that they had planted on their very first missionary journey. There was a bit of a dispute. Can anybody in here for 100 bucks? Tell me what the dispute was. I said a hundred bucks. That wasn't very much excitement. Thousand dollars? Yes, there was a dispute. In fact, a very sharp dispute because Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark on the missionary journey. He felt that even though he had failed, prioritizing people was more important, and so he was ready to bring John Mark. Paul, prioritizing mission, felt that it was not right to bring John Mark, who had abandoned in the middle of the very first missionary journey. And so the text tells us there was a very sharp disagreement. Okay, we try to beautify that, but there was a fracture. And so the text tells us that, that uh, Barnabas and John, they sailed from Seleucia, Seleucia over to the island of Cyprus. The book of Acts... From then on out, we don't hear anything more from Barnabas. We, we get a little glimpse in 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy of some type of restoration between Barnabas and Paul and, and Paul and John. But at that point, they sail off to Cyprus. Well, Paul takes Silas and starts heading up north. As you remember last week, they pass through the Sicilian gates as they go up into modern-day Turkey. Do we have a modern-day map in there, Ms. Shriva? I figured this would be helpful. Some of you all have asked for a modern-day map. And so they are in Antioch, that's present-day Syria. Most of the, the early churches were planted up here in Turkey. We're going to see them go all the way to the coast, to the city of Troas, and they're going to sail over to what in the Scriptures will say Macedonia. Okay? And you'll look at that and you're like, where's Macedonia? It is contemporary Greece. Okay? And so they're going to they're gonna sail to Kabbalah, Greece. And they're going to make their way along what is called the uh, Via Ignatia, the Roman highway, up into the city of Philippi. Does that help you, by the way, getting a contemporary map up there? Okay, well, I'll make sure to keep revisiting that. Okay, back to the ancient map. So Paul uh, and Silas go up to the north, they're on foot, and they make their way to Tarsus, that's Paul's home city, then they go up to Derby and Lystra, they're visiting all the cities they had already visited. At the city of Lystra, there is a young man by the name of Timo. Timothy, that's right. Gosh, you guys are on the ball. Uh, Timothy, uh, who, is, who is highly re regarded the Church of Lystra, his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, have been great disciplers of young Timothy, and Timothy joins the mission. And this is where it gets really interesting. Okay, so they're traveling across present-day Turkey, and they're going, and they're, they're wanting to go to the right. So they think, okay, so we're going to take the gospel up here. The Holy Spirit said no. Then they thought, okay, well, obviously, if we don't go right, we're going to go left. You ever been in a place where you're, like, seeking the will of God? And you're like, which way should I go? And so they try to go left. God says no. And so they keep going forward. And then all of a sudden, they run into an ocean. Like, you ever been in that place where you're like, okay, I don't go right, I don't go left, I go forward. But then all of a sudden, you're like, what am I supposed to do? Well, maybe God's telling you to get on a boat. So this is where they end up. This is a picture of Troas. Uh, on the Aegean Sea, and so this may or may not be similar or close to where Paul has his great Macedonian vision. 
So he's out overlooking the Aegean Sea, and some would argue this is the greatest shift in the book of Acts as far as westward expansion of the gospel. Chapter 16 of Acts, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 9 and following. The text says this, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. And so they had already tried to go right, no, left, no, but then there's a vision in the evening. And this vision, there's a man of Macedonia standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia, present-day Greece, and help us. What jumps out at you in that? What do you see there? What do you see in that, that particular vision? A call to preach the gospel. Somebody, there's this vision that is calling them. Is this a word from God? Okay, so like they were seeking, they were seeking direction. God gives this vision of the night, and there's a man in Macedonia, which will be very fascinating here in just a moment. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go. That is, he relayed the vision to the other missionaries, and then we sought to go. That is where we see Luke, the author of the book of Acts, join the missionary journey. It was all written in third person, and all of a sudden it's first person. He's like, I'm involved in this. We sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to do what? Preach the gospel. Okay, so in their, in their estimation and in their assumption at this point, and in this morning, what we're going to see firsthand within verse 10, God had called us to preach the gospel. It is central to their mission. That is their mission, is to preach the gospel. And this morning, we are going to witness firsthand the power of the gospel when it is preached to transform Lives. The gospel is preached over a large spectrum of humanity and society, and we're going to notice that regardless of gender or color or socioeconomic standing, the gospel can, when shared, transform the life of any person on earth. Do you believe that? The gospel has the power to transform the life of any person on earth. And we're going to see that through three distinct gospel cameos in chapter 16. We're going to see three different types of people receive the gospel. First, we're going to see a woman named Lydia in her household, a very affluent household. We're going to see the gospel transform the life of a slave girl. And then we're going to see the gospel transform the life of a Roman jailer and his whole entire household. That does not mean that those are the only people that were impacted by the preaching of the gospel in chapter 16, but Luke highlights these to show us that the gospel can transform any person on earth when it is preached. And so the missionaries, they set sail, verse 11, they set sail from Troas, and it says in the text, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and then from there to Philippi. If you can bring that map up for me real quick. So they hop on a boat at Troas. There's the island of Samothrace. You can still take this trip today. They go to the port city of Neapolis, which was actually the port city of the city of Philippi. Philippi was a very important Roman city in this particular time. It was, it's situated right on what is called the Via Ignatia, which is a Roman highway. So they travel inland, and they stop off at the very first city. Can you bring up that picture of the Via Ignatia? This is, next one. 
There it is. You can actually walk this Roman road. It's, it's almost like today. So like if you're going across country, there'll be like uh, markers that'll tell you of like ancient sites or where people used to go in covered wagons or whatever. We don't have a whole lot of ancient history until we get into the American Indian history. There is ancient history there. But as far as an American history, a very little. Well, Roman history goes back a couple thousand years or even farther than that. You can walk a thousand year high, but you can also drive right by it. There's a highway on the other side. Anyway, so you're on the Via Ignatia. This is the city of Philippi to the right. And so they stop off in the city of Philippi, and it says in the text, we remained in this city some days. We have no idea how long they stayed in the city, but the description of their stay in the city is the longest than any other city in the book of Acts. So we learn more about the city of Philippi than we do about any other city that they visited. And I think the reason why we get so much information about the city of Philippi is because it's the first city in Europe, where the gospel takes root. And so the, the missionaries, on verse, in verse 13, it says that they are in the city of Philippi, and on the Sabbath day, we, there again, we see that, we, so Luke's a part of this, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. So what was Paul's typical process when he entered a city? Where was the first place he'd preach? In the synagogue. Well, they get to the city of Philippi, there's no synagogue. In ancient Roman culture, well, really Jewish culture, if there was going to be a synagogue, there would have to be 10 Jewish families to establish a synagogue. So there, was, there weren't 10 Jewish families. And so they went to a place, an open-air place for prayer, and it just so happens that the place that they choose, they run into a group of ladies who are God-fearers who every single Saturday gather at a particular river and they pray. In fact, J. Vernon McGee, I love this quote, he supposes, he says, I wonder whether that prayer meeting had anything to do with Paul coming over to Europe and the vision of the man at Macedonia. I mean, think about that. Every single Saturday, this group of faithful women are praying and God sends a vision to come over to the city of Macedonia. And so they, they go and they sit and they're talking to this group of gals that are hanging out by the Gangites River, Gangites River. And on the surface, we may not think that's very significant, that Paul and missionary friends are talking to women. But we need to look at this a little bit more in depth. This is a radical turn of events. I quote here from Dr. Constable, because he talks about the significance of Paul, who was once a Pharisee, sharing the gospel with women. He writes this, that Paul, a former Pharisee, would preach to an audience of women reveals much about his changed attitude since Pharisees, listen to this, commonly thanked God. I mean, just imagine this is your prayer life. Like, this is what you're thanking God for. Think of the, the level of superiority and just the, the distortion that is going on in your mind and your spiritual life to pray this. Commonly thanking God that they were not Gentiles, slaves, or women. And then we see Paul and friends radically transformed by the gospel, sharing the gospel with a group of women gathered by a river. In my estimation, this, this reveals something we kind of need to talk about. The church has a messy past, and even a present relationship with women who are part of the body of Christ. I don't know if you're aware of this, but recently Beth Moore, really well-known evangelical leader, uh, published an open letter to the evangelical world talking about the prejudice and demeaning criticism she's experienced in the church, specifically by men of power, because she's a woman. 
And as I think about that, I, I think of those who try to use Scripture to subjugate women or to create this, this time of atmosphere of superiority where men are over women. And I want to tell you right now, that's a biblical distortion. Because the Bible tells us that we are in the Imago Dei, that all of us, men and women, we are in the Imago Dei, that is the image of God. We are image bearers and image equality, and in that equality, we're equally valued and equally esteemed. If we can't get that right as the church, culture doesn't stand a chance. And this is equally applicable to racial prejudice and racial divisions that still mark our churches today. The gospel is for every single person. And not only is the gospel for every single person, but the church is to reflect that. And so here the gospel is shared. A prominent woman is listening. I think this is interesting that the God, the God of heaven and earth is, is opening her heart, the text describes in verse 14. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. We learn a lot about Lydia from the city of Thyatira. That was an artesian city known for its purple ink. She was a seller of purple goods who was a, what does that text say? She was a what of God? She was a worshiper of God, but she did not know Jesus as her Savior. And it says the Lord opened her heart. So as the gospel is shared, her heart is being opened. You know, sometimes we think that we need to to convince people, and if we had better evidence, then people would be won over to the gospel, and so we kind of turn into like people who cajole or badger others. I don't need to take a show of hands, but I'm willing to bet that statistically very few of us came to Christ through badgering. Were you badgered into the kingdom? (laughs) Is that how your heart was won? If we could just see there's far more power in our prayer praying for those we want to share the gospel with, that God would open their heart to the message, that God would unstop their ears, that God would quicken their spirit. And then as we share the gospel in grace, we allow God to do what God does, which is save souls. Amen? And so the Lord opens her heart to pay attention, and at that moment, she receives the gospel, and at that, at that same exact time, so does her whole household. This is incredible. I don't know if it's her husband, her kids. And they all decide to be baptized in the river right where they're at. This is so cool. I have a friend of mine. His name's Taryn Dames. He's the pastor of North Dallas Bible Community Church. Make sure I get all those, those letters in there. And he is, just happens to be in the city of Philippi. In fact, this is Taryn right now. He's hanging out. Um, that's the actual river, that's the Gangites River, where Lydia was baptized. In fact, I'm sorry, he's not there any longer. He's in Athens. Uh, I'm just so geeking out. So he's sending me hundreds of photos, and I'm like sitting on the couch, and I'm like, ooh. And Madeline's like, what are you looking at on your phone? Pictures of Philippi. She's like, we're going to need to take a look at that. And so here's, here's Taryn. He's just, oh, I'm so jealous. Okay, so here's the next picture. This is a better vantage point. This is the actual river that flows outside the city of Philippi where Lydia and her whole household is baptized. The text goes on to say, in uh, verse 15, it says, after she was baptized, so after she was taken up out of the river, 
She immediately is stirred in a spirit of generosity, and, and she urged us, saying, if you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she's immediately, like, opening up her home, like, bring this gospel presence. Let this be, like, the, the central hub of your ministry and missionary work. And history tells us that this is where the church is planted at Philippi, at Lydia's house. And so they, they take up her offer, and they go and they start doing missionary work outside of her home, and then we run into the very second, uh, the second cameo of the passage. First, it is Lydia in her household, an affluent lady who has won over to the gospel. Her heart is open. Now we're going to meet a slave girl who had a python spirit. It says in, in verse 16, so days have passed now, and as we are going to the place of prayer, they're going back out to the river to pray. We don't know what day it is. There's no time stamp on it. It says, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. In Greek, it's referring to what's called a python spirit. It was a highly regarded spirit in the Greek pantheon, and it brought her owners much gain by doing what? What would she do? She was a fortune teller. She was a diviner. And so in and through this python spirit, she was able to somehow discern what appeared to be fortune or future events. This, this spirit had a grip on her. And through this demonic spirit created a very valuable revenue stream for her owners. And it's so hilarious to me what this girl started doing because she begins heralding for, the, for these apostles, these missionaries, as they're traveling through the city, look at verse 17. She followed Paul and us. Listen to what she, she's crying this out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She becomes this giant billboard traveling through the city. And at first, I think it was probably pretty benign. It gathered crowds. But then all of a sudden, it was like she wouldn't stop saying that. And then she's like interrupting, and then it's like getting, getting in the way of the message and the messengers, and then all of a sudden the text tells us that Paul gets annoyed. Now, I don't know if this is spiritual annoying. I don't know if, if you ever, some of us have that gift of being spiritually annoyed by others. Do any of you have that gift? But Paul did. So she kept doing this for many days, having become greatly annoyed. He turned and said to the what? He does not rebuke the girl. See, the issue was not the girl. The issue was the spirit that had its grip on her. And he rebukes the spirit. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it says in that very hour it came out. She is, she is literally set free. And I would argue at this moment, this python spirit was then replaced by the Holy Spirit. And she's now in her right mind. And we celebrate that because Jesus is the bondage breaker. Like Jesus liberates and I've talked to those who practice what they call like the dark arts or the demonic. And they'll share how when they gave their life to Christ, things change. Because the, the demonic, it has its grip on people. It tortures people. But then there's also perceived power in those people. And so when they are liberated by Christ, they recognize immediately that that torture is gone. But they also recognize that this power, this perceived power that they once had is gone too. So immediately, she's, no longer to for, she's not able to fortune tell anymore, which is about to become a huge, huge problem. She couldn't perform her previous duties because she was free in Christ, but that is going to cost her owners a lot of money. I just want to say this. There are some people in our life that need us to remain in bondage. 
They don't, they don't want you liberated by Christ. That messes up their agenda. In verse 19 it says, but when, it, when her owners saw that there was the hope of, of gain was gone, they seized Paul. That literally speaks of a costing. Like they grabbed Paul and they grabbed Silas. They dragged them through the city streets. And they dragged him to this open market. This is called the Agora. You can still visit this place in Philippi before the rulers. In fact, this is a picture of the Agora today. Uh, they're still trying to restore some of the archways, but they drag Paul and Silas through the streets and they throw them down before the magistrates, the Roman magistrates, the Roman rulers. And they make an interesting accusation against Paul and Silas. The text says, verse 20, when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. You notice they don't mention anything about income. This had nothing to do with the teaching of Paul and Silas. They weren't coming and preaching Judaism. They were preaching Jesus. But see, they, they didn't want to say the truth, but the reality is why they're bringing the accusation is because of greed. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And you've got these incredible accusations but greed motivates it all. And this tells me, family, there's times when people are going to bring false accusations. They're going to try to tear you down. And, and they're going to use all kinds of ways. And they're going to manipulate. And, but what really, if you trace it all the way back, it's, it's most likely like greed or jealousy or envy. Cloaked as some type of accusation. And then the crowd does what crowds do, mob mentality. The crowd joined in attacking them, so they're now being attacked by all of the city. And the magistrates, listen to this, tore the garments off them. You, can you, have you ever been humiliated like that? I mean, they are literally stripped of their clothes in front of an entire city, and then they're beat with rods. And sometimes, I, I'm, you know, I'm reading the book of Acts, and I'm like, what were they, what were they willing to go through? To share the gospel. Paul is stoned half near to death at Lystra. He keeps preaching. He's now stripped down to his skivvies and beaten with rods. The text goes on to say, when they inflicted many blows upon them, uh, this will be the first of three canings that Paul will receive in his journeys, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he, being the jailer, put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Here's the present-day image of the jail. It's kind of an inner jail cell, uh, and there was much built around it, and so, you know, we don't know if that's the actual cell, but you, you can visit it. And, and the next cameo is the jailer. See, we first see Lydia impacted by the gospel, this, this seller of fine goods from Thyatira. Then we see the slave girl who's impacted. Now we're going to see this Roman jailer who was most likely a Roman soldier or officer. And he puts Paul in stocks and Silas in stocks. I mean, that's for, for an extreme criminal. But he's going to come to discover he's the one in chains. How do you respond when you're unjustly treated, by the way, out of curiosity? What's, your, what's, what's our typical response? I'll say our. I'll tell you, I mean, I'll tell you what mine is, but I want to hear yours. What's that? self-defensive, start to lash back, cry foul, start demanding our rights, 
find it fascinating how Paul and Silas responded to their unjust treatment. Verse 25. About midnight, they turned the jail cell into a cathedral of praise. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. As you, as you break that sentence down in Greek, it, it literally has this, this, this meaning that the prisoners were listening in a way of joy. They were, they, were, they were pleased with what they were hearing. Man, our Christian witness is powerful when we're going through difficult times. When the world looks in and sees us going through difficult times and we respond with prayers and with singing, the world looks in and goes, what do you have? What hope do you have? The whole jail is just filled with these, these voices of singing and, and prayer and it, it began moving hearts and it began moving the earth. The earth began to shake. Look at verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. I mean, I could get all allegorical. I could, get, I could just be like, Jesus breaks the chains, and Christ, the doors swing open. Y'all seeing that? In Christ, there's power. But this was not a good thing for the jailer. See, the jailer had, had fallen asleep to the sound of singing and prayers. And when he awakes at the earthquake, he notices all the jail doors are opened. All the bonds have been unfastened. And his immediate thought is, oh my gosh, everyone has escaped. If a Roman soldier lost one prisoner, they were to be put to public execution. Could you imagine what this man was facing for losing an entire jail full of people? So he pulls his sword. The text says in verse 27, when the jailer woke up, he saw the prison doors were open. He drew his sword, was about to kill himself. His only recourse at this point was suicide, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But listen to this. I mean, God just powerfully loving this soldier through Paul. He becomes this conduit of grace to the soldier. He cries out, don't harm yourself. You are loved. Don't do it. We're all here. We're not going anywhere, man. We're right here. And says the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Tears streaming down his cheeks. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Is there any more succinct statement that describes our eternal state? What must I do? And we have spent much time unpacking that question. Because there are many today who will tell you, oh, you've got to do all kinds of stuff to be saved. You've got to be baptized in a particular building. And you've got to accept certain creeds. And you, you have to sign certain documents. And you have to be a part of a certain group. And, and if you're going to be saved, you're going to, have to, you're going to have to do a lot of good works. And you better not mess up because once you are saved, you can lose it. And, and there's all kinds of just crazy distortions of the gospel. I have a very good friend of mine who works in the medical profession. He gets to see people at their, their, their toughest, darkest moments, man. I mean, people who are just broken. And he gets to tell them this, this next statement. 
What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's startling because of its simplicity. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus. And my friend gets to do that on the regular in his office. As people come into his office, he gets to tell them, believe in Jesus. And people are like, that's not enough. I've got to do more. He's like, no, that's it. It's by grace you're saved. It's through faith. It's not of works. And so Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him and told this particular jailer that Jesus had died for his sins on the cross, that he was buried and he had risen from the dead and he's alive and if he places his faith in him, he'd be saved. And at that moment, that jailer cries out, I want Jesus. And, and he's baptized and then his whole household's baptized. I find it fascinating that the text tells us, verse 33, he took them that same hour and washed their wounds. He washes their wounds and they baptize him. Isn't that a neat symmetry? He washes them, they wash him and his household. Then they share a meal together. And listen to this, the joy. You want to talk about joy? When the gospel comes into a home. When the gospel comes into a heart. We are so long in the Lord that we forget at times that when the gospel is received, it comes with great rejoicing. Because in verse 33, it says, he was baptized at once, verse 34, he brought him into his house. Look at the end of verse 34. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Gospel's powerful to transform lives. We've seen it in the life of Lydia, her household. We see it in the life of the slave girl. We now see it in the life of the Roman soldier. How about your life? How has the gospel powerfully changed your life? When did you ask that question, how may I be saved? When did you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul? When did that type of rejoicing fill your home? I pray it's today. And if for us who have been in the Lord for a while, please do not forget the joy, the, the absolute joy of our salvation. The grace of God. The rest of the chapter reads, it's hilarious, I'll let you do it on your own. It is so funny. Because the next day the magistrates are like, alright, go ahead and release those guys. And Paul's like, I'm not going out of this prison. They're going to have to come, they're going to have to come escort us out. And the prisoner, prison guards are like, why? Oh, by the way, because we're Roman citizens. And the magistrates go, oh no. Because you can't publicly try Roman citizens in that culture. You can't beat them, and you certainly can't unjustifiably put them in prison. And so the magistrates have to come and apologize. <laughs> it's just classic. They're like, we're super sorry. That the whole beating thing, stripping you naked, like putting you in the shackles. <laughs> we didn't know you were Romans. Please don't tell Rome. We're cool, right? Paul's like, hey, I'm going to hang out for a few more days. I'm going to ensure that this, this church is strengthened. The text says he goes and visits Lydia, encourages the brothers, and this great church is planted, and it's a beautiful, beautiful mess. So a few applications for us to take home. First, I, I want to, you know, how many times have you, hundreds, I don't know, thousands, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've been, we, we know that we're supposed to share the gospel, right? Like we've heard that before. Have you heard that before? Like once or twice? <laughs> it's redundant. 
And I think in that redundancy, sometimes we start to roll our eyes. But as I look at this text at verse 10, I look at it, I'm like, our mission is to preach the gospel. That like literally is our mission. And sometimes we look at it and we go, well, Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Luke, and well, they're professionals. Like, they're professional missionaries or they're professional pastors or they're professional evangelists. Like, that's their job. And then there's a point where we realize, no, that's not their job. That's our job. We go from them and they to being us and we. It's our mission to share the gospel with the culture. It is, it's our job. You know, as I boil down the Christian life, I can't think of anything more important, any other message that we are to share, that God loves the world, sent his son to die for our sins, that all who believe, no matter who they are, by faith are saved. And you get to look at them and they go, that can't be it. You go, that's it. Wait, there's got to be more. Oh, there's more. Oh, I, we go on for days, character, nature of God. We can, we can, we can talk about every. With different aspects of his, of his creation and his, his, his character's nature. But let's just start with salvation. Our mission is to share the gospel. Not to rebuke the sinner. We need to share the message of Jesus. Secondly, it is for everyone. I'm going to speak with a very monotone voice. Our prejudice has to die. I don't care what side of the fence somebody lives on. Nor should we. It should not matter to us what someone's gender is or their gender preference. should not matter how somebody self-identifies. That's not the issue. Somebody's social standing, whether they live in prisons or palace, suburbia or inner city, no matter a person's political association or perspective, it doesn't matter if they attended this week's convention for the NRA or if they were absolutely detested by it. The gospel is for every man and woman and child on earth. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is more important than sharing the gospel. There's no room for prejudice or a spirit of superiority, a humble willingness to share God's love with the world. I love that Paul was once a Pharisee, literally thanking God that he wasn't a Gentile or a slave or a woman that had to die. And it did on the cross. Replaced by a humble willingness to see others as image bearers of God on equal footing underneath the cross. The church of Philippi, thank God, was made up of men and women, rich and poor. Uh, Just a cross cut of socioeconomic culture, Roman culture, family, firewall should be a cross section of our culture. There's no room for superiority. Some of you were like, then why are you standing on a stage? I'm like, well, it's hard to see you all in the back from the floor, but I'll stand down there. There's no room. We literally are all under equal footing. And I pray that that's the type of atmosphere Firewall is. I pray that people come in here and they realize that this is a true place of grace, a gospel movement. And then finally, we'll end here. Our Christian witness, this is a tough one because I'm struggling right now, family. 
I wish I could tell you that I got it all together. I just don't. And it's hard when I'm going through seasons of trial to remain joyous or hopeful. I wish I could tell you every time I'm in the proverbial prison, I'm filling it with a cathedral of praise. Wouldn't that be awesome? I'd like to introduce you to the Pomalas family. They actually know me. And they'll tell you, we are a mess. We're part of our life group, and we're very candid. It's not always going to feel like you're, you're top of the mountain. And I'll, I'll tell you, every single person in the scripture, if you do a character study on every single person outside of Christ, you are going to run into really messy people who at times stand on mountaintops and other times are crawling through valleys. There's times where the psalmist is proclaiming nothing can get in the way of my love and devotion. And the next day the psalmist is like, where are you? Why are you doing this to me? And the next day, I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You're like, you're a manic depressive. (laughs) You ever read through the Psalms? It's a mess. But I'll tell you that the world is watching. I do not say that in guilt and shame. I say that in the sense of understand that as we grow and mature, people will see more and more of Christ in us. Don't try to manufacture it. It's something that is brought about through a maturing Christian witness. But God is reaching the world. You are God's poema. You're his poetry to the world. Let's not forget that witness. Lord Jesus, we come before you. Everybody did so well this morning. Attentive. Uh, Lord, we are awake. And uh, we thank you for your scriptures. We pray that the gospel would have its work in our culture. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus is your Savior, please understand that he did die for you. And if you're asking that question, what must I do to be saved? The the Bible's clear. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he died for you. He's buried. He's risen. He's alive right now. Tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. Please save my life. The Bible proclaims that if that is your heart's prayer, you just pass from death to life. Rejoice. Share it with your household. Get baptized. Proclaim it to the world, I've been saved, I'm loved. Fill our hearts with that joy that we'd be willing to take a caning or two to go take the gospel around the world. And I think of the supposed difficulties that I call mountains in my life, Lord. I'm humbled when I look at Paul. He was literally shackled in a jail cell. And he's praying and rejoicing. Fill my heart with that kind of courage. Fill our heart, this church, with that kind of courage to face our difficulties with that type of faith. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together.